invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah chapter 40 for our Old Testament reading this morning. Here the Lord himself reminds the prophet of the great strength that the Lord provides by his Spirit, that we might endure trial and tribulation. Themes that we see replete throughout Paul's letter, uh, second letter here to the church of Corinth. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and why do you speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord, He is the everlasting God, is the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint, he does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall and be exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and they shall not be weary. And shall walk and shall not faint. Now, turning with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. As we wrap up uh, another chapter here in this letter, we'll focus our attention on verses 16 to 18, but for broader context, as Paul continues to talk about the work of the Spirit in the midst of suffering, we'll begin reading in verse 7. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 beginning in verse 7 and reading through the end of the chapter. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Speaking of the gospel in our own frail bodies. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We were afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We were perplexed, but not driven to despair. We were persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, if you recall from Psalm 116 last week, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Knowing this, that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sakes that it's the grace of of God extends to more and more people, it may abound or increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
This is God's holy word. Let us go before him uh, in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have given us your word that has been preserved throughout all ages, that we might know the salvation that is found in Christ. We do ask that by your Spirit's power, you would not only open our eyes to see uh, the great promises of the gospel, but that you would strengthen our hearts to continue uh, to persevere as pilgrims in a strange land, looking for those things that are still yet unseen. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for the past few years, uh, every October, me and my family get together uh, to go on vacation in some place or another, depending upon, of course, where it is uh, that I am. This began uh, when I started doing my internship in Michigan five or six years ago. Uh, My parents would fly up, and for a week, we would drive up to the Upper Peninsula, the uh, UP, as uh, they call it out there uh, in the Midwest, or I guess from this perspective, would you call it uh, the the Mideast? I don't know. But what we have is we we would go on these these trips uh, just to see uh, the sites, these places that we've never been, and from there, we would go visit other places. I ended up, of course, moving to Chicago, and we'd go and see downtown Chicago and other areas uh, uh, on that side of the lake. We even uh, just the other year went to Wyoming. Now, what's interesting is for about six years, or six years, for about uh, six months leading up to uh, our grand family uh, vacations, uh, it really shapes the, uh, the conversations that I hold with my folks every Sunday evening, as I call them when I get home uh, from church. It's interesting, it's, uh, over the course of our conversations, even as early as May or June, my dad will be talking about, oh, I looked up these hotels at this place that we're planning on going at in October. We've got to check out these sites. We've got to do these particular things. In other words, the uh, events of uh, something that we have not yet seen, these things that are coming down the pike, shape how it is uh, that we uh, live on uh, the day-to-day even uh, today. I think we all have things that we look forward to. It might be the small things such as payday. It might be those medium things such as vacations or, or family reunions. Or it might be those, those even long-term items such as uh, paying off your student loans uh, or uh, paying off uh, your mortgage or even retiring. Our passage before us this morning calls us to set our sights not on these lesser things, but on ultimate things, and to let that last day determine how we live our lives today. The great hope of Christ's return, though it is still yet unseen, should shape the very things that we talk about. It should shape our very affections and those things that we long for. As we set our sights on ultimate things, what we find here is that Paul contrasts where we are with where we will one day be and calls us to set our sights on heaven and so then fill our hearts with courage as we are presently not in heaven. So we are presently walking through a strange and weary wilderness. As these particular these tensions between uh, where we are now and where we will one day be, Paul brings into view three particular contrasts. We see first the contrast he makes between the inner and the outer man in verse 16. Secondly, in verse 17, he makes a contrast between the present light afflictions versus that eternal weight of glory. And then one final contrast, verse 18 
the difference between the things seen and the things that are unseen. So the inner and the outer man, the line of afflictions versus the eternal weight of glory, and finally the things seen and the things unseen. Three contrasts to help put into refined focus what it is that we are intending to do as we walk through this uh, earthly wilderness. As you recall, where we have been working our way through this letter, Paul has been having to defend his ministry against detractors. And at this point, the letter is addressing the issue of discouragement in the ministry, and even more broadly, discouragement in the Christian life. You can even ask Paul, you can, you can feel it in his letter, why Paul is so discouraged. It seems that nobody likes Paul. Certainly the impression, or at least a lot of people don't like Paul. There's a man who has been assaulted, sequestered, slandered, stoned, shipwrecked, The Romans are out to kill him. The Jews are out to kill him, as you remember in chapter 1. The local church doesn't like him. You can feel that question that's pressing against him. Why even bother to continue? What we see in verses 7 to 15, as we looked at just a few weeks ago, Paul sees himself as being largely expendable, like an old Starbucks cup, an old uh, Big Mac box. He's disposable, but what he has, the contents that he brings are themselves invaluable. Like a cup of coffee for you Pacific Northwesterners who seem to love coffee so much. But now there's a shift in focus. Whereas in verses 7 to 15, the focus was on the weakness of Paul versus the power of the gospel. Now Paul focuses on the transient nature of this weakness. In other words, that, that this, this distinction that he's making between his own weakness and the power of gospel is a distinction that will eventually give way. Paul focuses on the, uh, the, the transientness, the fleeting nature of our present sufferings by setting it against the backdrop of the whole course of human history. Here's a man who thinks deeply but speaks simply. And for Paul, when he speaks of what we might call the end times, uh, he doesn't require some massive uh, decoder ring, some kind of end time chart uh, that wraps around the walls of a church building. For Paul, all of history can be summarized in two distinct stages. This age and the age to come. The old creation that has been ruined by the first Adam's rebellion. Through Adam's sin, this age has been thrust into an estate of sin and sickness, misery and death. And on the other hand, we have the new creation that has been ushered in by the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by his death and resurrection has inaugurated a new world and a new creation that is being called forth into existence through the preaching of the gospel. That's why Paul makes that analogy at the opening, in the opening verses here of chapter 4, that just as God in the old creation, well, God in the midst of nothing spoke and the old creation came to be, so God speaks through the preaching of the gospel and the new creation comes into existence. This is a repeated theme that makes its way and develops even through the end of chapter 5 where Paul will say, behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is part of the new creation. 
This language of the old creation and the new creation, this age and the age to come, sits front and center in Paul's own thought. And here we find that we are living in an overlap of the ages. We, where our bodies are still subject to so much suffering and sickness and decay and death, and yet we have been called and sealed by the Spirit, preserved, so that when Christ Himself returns, the thing, the old order will pass away and the new creation will stand firm and complete. In other words, Whereas the Spirit has begun the work of restoring all things, it has not yet been completed. So you'll hear theologians speak of the already and not yet of the kingdom of Christ. Christ's kingdom has already been inaugurated by His death and resurrection, but it has not yet been consummated. It will finally be consummated on the day of His return. The question we have before us, though, is what does life look like in the interim? What does that life look like between the first advent of Christ and His second advent? What does life look like between the incarnation of Christ and His return? So Paul here speaks of the outer and the inner man. The distinction is not so much a distinction of body versus soul, as much as it is a distinction in terms of looking at where we are in the overlap of the ages. From the perspective of what is seen, the outer man, sickness continues to chip away. Death continues to take its grisly toll on the course of the human events. Death appears to reign. According to what is seen, that is certainly how things look. It's the very issue that the author of Hebrews raises in chapter 2. Christ rules over all things, though we do not yet now see it. Because as Hebrews continues, the goal is to walk according to those things not that are seen, but to walk according to the things that are unseen, that are revealed to us by God in His Word. And so when you talk to uh, your friends or neighbors or protect, uh, family members who are not believers who scoff at the word of Christ, and you say that Christ reigns, Christianity is going to sound like a fool's tale to them. How is it they could say that Christ has triumphed over death when we have so many people around us dying? That's the perspective of the outer man. And yet, from the perspective of the inner man, those things that are not seen, the Spirit has begun the work of restoration, uh, even in the midst of a world that is passing away. I have a a buddy of mine who, uh, back home in Florida, his whole job uh, consists in renovating homes. And I remember when I was in college, sometimes I'd make a little bit of extra money uh, to help gut those homes. I remember at one point in time, we, uh, there was a house that had caught on fire, and we had to go uh, on the inside and gut out everything. Uh, from the, the perspective of the outside, uh, the, the home looked like it was in shambles. 
But after the renovation that took place on the inside, it was, it was quite the contrast. You know, I've been looking at a lot of homes on Zillow, and I feel the same way. Uh, and, and look at some of these homes. You're like, this home was built in like 1910. It looks like it's falling apart. And then you look at the pictures on the inside, and it's the, this whole beautiful remodeling job where they look like two completely different homes. But this is what Paul's getting at, is on the outside, we look dilapidated and like we're falling apart. But the Spirit is doing the work of renovation on the inside. He'll eventually get to the restoration of the outside of the house. But the inner man goes first. We'll talk about that outside renovation, namely the resurrection of the dead next week. But here the focus is on that moral transformation by the work of the Spirit For the Christian, you might look like a mess on the outside, but it does not mean that the Spirit is not at work. Sometimes we feel like we're being gutted, such as the nature of sanctification. But that is what is needed to clean house. Paul repeatedly will tell us that the Spirit has not come to make us happy in one sense, at least not to make us happy yet. But He has come to make us holy. And that holiness will lead to our ultimate happiness. What is man's chief end? Is the enjoyment of God. God himself is our chief happiness. He is our chief reward. So Paul says, you know why I'm not discouraged? Despite these various afflictions, it's because the Spirit is at work in our hearts. And that is what matters. That is what is lasting the moral work of the Spirit in our hearts, the renewal of the inner man, conforming us to look like Christ in virtue and integrity. As Paul will say in Ephesians and Colossians, Colossians, that the Spirit works to renew us in knowledge, in righteousness, in holiness. He renews our understanding. He opens the eyes of our hearts that we might know what Christ has done and so that we might our affections might be might be warmed to the work of Christ, that we might serve Christ, not just externally, but from the heart, somewhat akin to setting a broken leg. Uh, If you've ever uh, seen somebody with a broken leg, I remember my brother jumped off of a stage once and shattered his leg, and seeing them have to set the leg, you feel like they're doing something that's far worse uh, than uh, than what is required. But setting the leg is required if the bone is to heal properly. Such is the nature of sanctification. Such is the nature of suffering. It's like setting a broken leg. It hurts now, but it is for our good in the long run. It is necessary if we are ever to walk again. If you recall, at the end of chapter 3, what is it that Paul has said? That the Spirit transforms us to look like Christ, and He does so by having us behold Christ. That's what we mean when we say the Spirit's work is one of moral renovation. That As we consider Christ and who He is and what He has done, it changes us. The Spirit changes us. It begins to shape us to look like Christ Himself. The principal work of the Spirit is that internal moral work. And what we see is that the Spirit uses suffering as the material to prepare us for the glory of God. To come. You see that here in verse 17, where he makes that distinction between those light momentary afflictions and the eternal weight of glory. You know, I turn uh, 40 next month. 
And uh, same thing happens on my birthday that's happened for the past, I don't know, 25, 30 years. As long as I can remember at least. But going back even further, every year on my birthday, at least since I moved out of the house, my mom will call me. What will she say? On this day in 1981, do you know how much pain you caused me? You took your sweet time. And then she'll go into detail, details of which I will not subject you or anyone else to. But she can laugh about the pain now. Why is that? It's the nature of childbirth, isn't it? At least so I hear. And childbirth is, in fact, painful. But compared to the glory of having a child, it's worth the cost. The Lord says the same thing in John chapter 16. When a woman has given birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers her anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world. Right? I have several friends who, you know, in the midst of uh, uh, being with child, will make comments like, never again. You know, this is too painful. But then what happens, you know? Um, I, I visited a family once in the hospital after they had their first kid, and it was a family that, that was not excited about the prospect. And then, at, you know, visit them in the hospital just as they had their first kid. What's the conversation? I can't wait for us to have another. Have you remembered the past 14 hours? See, that light momentary affliction gives weight to an eternal weight of glory. There's an analogy here between Christian suffering and glory that Scripture makes over and over again. First, there is the comparison of our present suffering to the glory of the one to come. It makes this suffering a light thing, an insignificant thing, painful as it is now. Right? That's not to downplay the intensity of the suffering. Right? I'm, it only puts it in its proper perspective. I'm not telling husbands that if your wife is in the middle of child labor that you tell her that her suffering is no big deal. That's perhaps not the best thing to tell her in the midst of giving birth to a child. But it does help us put that proper suffering in its broader context. Paul here calls our present afflictions a light thing. He compares it to the eternal weight of glory that is to come. I'll get into what that eternal weight looks like in chapter 5 when he speaks of the resurrection of the body, where he makes that comparison, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 15, between our earthly bodies and our resurrected bodies, the same body though it is, is greater in comparison as is the distinction between an acorn and an oak tree. How many of us could look at the acorn and say, aha, an oak tree is going to come from that? if we didn't know what it did first. Paul says there's the same analogy with our resurrected bodies. It's something much more glorious. There's an eternal weightiness to it. We'll talk about that next week. Yet another analogy that Paul gives here is that because the glory to come will come, we now know that this suffering we have is in fact not permanent. It's transient. It's only momentary. Right? Nobody spends an eternity in childbirth. It is intense. It may last a few minutes or hours or even a few days. But in comparison to what it brings forth, that suffering is just a blip on the radar screen. It becomes just another awkward conversation to have with your grown son on his birthday on the phone. It's a conversation, by the way, I look forward to every year, by the way, so... 
It's, uh, it's, it's great to have those, uh, those family traditions. And yet there's another analogy to be said that just like childbirth, this suffering is in fact necessary. Notice what Paul says here in verse 17, that the affliction prepares us for glory. There is no bypassing suffering. This is the road, the path that the believer must follow if ever he, are, he is to make it to the celestial city. Paul says in Acts 14, through many afflictions we must enter the kingdom of God. So how is it that these afflictions prepare us? Well, if you see here in verse 18, what they do is this. They set our sights on the horizon. Note the as that you see here if you're using the ESV. That the afflictions prepare us for glory as while we presently look for those unseen things. Right? I'm from Florida. I'm a fifth generation Floridian. I love the idea of boats. But I hate being on boats. Because I get motion sickness like you would not believe. And I remember uh, I used to teach high school, and one year for our uh, seniors for spring break, they had a spring break trip to, to the Bahamas, and they couldn't find enough chaperones. So I was required to go to the Bahamas uh, as part of my job. And I think for anybody else, they would see that as a wonderful thing. For me, I begged and pleaded not to go. I don't want to be on the water, I get sick as a dog. I hated it. Get seasick. But you know what I was told? They said, well, it'll be, it'll be fine. Just set your sights on the horizon and it'll help, help things out. I think it does that for most people. It didn't do it for me. There's a bobcat staring at me. Maybe he's hearing the message and is transfixed. Anyways, never mind. That's the imagery that's uh, intended. Setting your sights on the horizon. To look, that word here means to set your sights on, to be on the lookout for it. It's like the man uh, on a boat in the crow's nest, having his, his eyes on the horizon, looking for land, looking for those things that you cannot now see. But even that act of setting your sights on, the thing that is just over the horizon, it helps you from losing your lunch in the middle of the ocean. And at the very least, it keeps you from turning inward. See, that's the nature of faith. Faith is extrospective. Fancy big pants word. Faith looks outward, not inward. I think for so many of us, when we think of faith, we always want to turn inward, try to muster up the resources uh, to, um, uh, to, to, uh, to, to make it through the day. But that's not what faith is, according to Paul. Faith doesn't look inward. Faith looks outward. Faith is extrospective. It is not introspective. Faith looks outward, not inward. It is looking for that land over the horizon rather than looking at our present bearings and situation. You think of Peter as he's walking on water to see Christ. What happens? What is it that causes him to sink? He no longer has set his eyes on Christ. has begun to see the circumstances around him and begins to drown. What faith does is it sets its sights not on our present circumstances, but on Christ and His eternal kingdom. Hebrews 11, faith sets its sights on the world to come, a world that has been sketched before us in Scripture. 
The flitching prepares us by teaching us to keep our eyes focused on the horizon, to keep our eyes focused on Christ who has promised that he will one day come. Do we know what day that is? Nope. That's why we keep setting our eyes on the horizon. I'm reading a lot of kind of American colonial history stuff right now and reading about pilgrims. Think about crossing the uh, the Atlantic Ocean for the first time, and you think you don't know how much longer uh, it's going to be until you see uh, land in sight. So every day you're, you're just looking, going, is today the day? Is today the day? You keep looking for those things that are unseen. Paul says this elsewhere, to keep your eyes on the prize, Philippians chapter 3, it is a race to be run, to keep your sight set on the finish line. Remember the end goal, Glory. These present afflictions may weigh us down, but they're a light thing compared to the weight of glory, that weightiness that Paul will speak of in chapter 5. That weightiness we'll see when we look forward to the new creation in all of its glory, and our resurrected bodies in all of its glory. Do we know exactly what that looks like? No. We're looking forward and anticipating a kingdom that we have not yet seen. But we've been given these assurances the written pages of Scripture that is something that exceeds our wildest dreams or imaginations. Who can conceive what the mind of the Lord has prepared for those who love Him? Can anyone hearing the screams of a mother in labor ever guess that the agony would give way to inexpressible joy hours later? That's what we're getting at. This is what Paul's getting at here in this passage. To reorient our understanding of suffering. That what we believe about the future determines how we live in the present and in doing so prepares us for the future. The things that matter are not the things that we see. Your grades have no eternal significance. I'm not telling you not to study for those of you who are in school. But that's not what your ultimate sight should be set on. Your job title has no eternal significance. The size of your house, your bank account, your health, where you go on vacation, these are all good things. But these are not the weightier things. This passage calls us to realign our priorities, to recalibrate our bearings by setting our sights on the horizon, to be on the lookout for those things that we have not yet seen to be on the lookout for the kingdom of Christ and the king of that kingdom, our Savior. This is where we find our reservoir of encouragement. It's not our present circumstances, but the promises of God found in Christ. To be fully given and meted out at the return of Christ, the consummation of all things. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the promise that we have an unshakable kingdom awaiting us. Even though we have not yet seen what that kingdom looks like, we know it is a kingdom of grace where sin has not tainted it, a kingdom where righteousness abounds. We ask that you would make us fit citizens for that kingdom for the day of its arrival and consummation. Help us, we pray. Use this meal that we're about to partake in as a means to help us persevere further on. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.